It is great to be here this morning back at Hope and get to worship with you and see everyone. Um, just before I get started, let me mention if um, back on this table back here, we have uh, a handout that you can pick up that's our end of year report. So it tells you what was going on in 2022 in Peru and, and uh, also talks about prospects for 2023. And there's a card here that you can fill out if you're interested in getting on our mailing list or uh, getting information about any other aspects of the, of the mission. So those are there, and uh, I would love to talk to you about any of this uh, later if that, if that works out. Our scripture reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 28. What other passage might a missionary preach from but Matthew 28? Matthew 28, and we'll just read the last few verses there from 16 to 20. Let's hear the word of God. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's pray. Holy Father, we give you thanks for Jesus, who is the great hero of your epic saga, of how you are redeeming the world and transforming this world and renewing and restoring us. Give us grace, O Lord, this morning, that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Give us grace to understand the things that we hear, to be encouraged by them and built up, and also to put them into practice in our lives. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. I don't know how many of you might have heard of this before, but um, back in the 60s and I think even into the early 70s, there was a a social science researcher named John Calhoun who did an experiment that has, been, has come to be called the Rat Utopia Experiment. Uh, I think in the 60s he did it on rats and then in the early 70s he did it on mice and I think it was reported on in Scientific American both times, at least the first time it came out in Scientific American. In this experiment, Calhoun set up what he called a rat utopia. So it's, it's uh, this place where he's going to develop a colony of rats. He's got the, the rats in quarantine for a while first to make sure that there are no diseases or anything like that that's brought into it. But then he sets it up and, and these rats are given everything that their little rat heart could possibly imagine or long for. They're given every kind of food, the best kind of rat food, whatever that is. They're given the best drink, whatever that is. I assume water, but I don't know, maybe something else. Then they're given free run. They can have uh, 
sexual relations to their heart's content. They've got all kinds of games set up. Everything is set up to make this a complete rat utopia. Um, however, curiously, what, what actually happened in this experiment is that instead of these rats prospering and thriving, what happens is that they find themselves going down, down, down into a, a, a deeply pathological death spiral. We find, for example, that, that the, the rats stop eating. Many of them or most of them stop eating, they stop breeding, they become extremely violent, they engage in self-harm, some, some of them start eating their legs off or their tails off. Uh, all kinds of pathological behavior breaks out among them until finally the rat utopia just dies out completely. The entire colony dies out. I want to suggest to you that something like that rat utopia phenomenon is what we're experiencing in the Western world in our day. And by Western world, I, what I actually mean by that, I, I would include Latin America in that, but not just Latin America. Basically, any part of the world, east or west, if they've got urban centers with a million people or more, they've got everything about the Western world, and so they're part of the Western world. They've got the internet, they've got Hollywood, they've got pornography, they've got everything they need to become a, a standard Western city. And so what I would argue is that throughout the Western world in our day, we are beginning to experience something like the rat utopia phenomenon. Back in the, uh, I, I would suggest to you that this particular phenomenon that we're experiencing, it's actually something quite old. It started way back in the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution, but then after World War II in the 50s, it started picking up steam in a pretty big way. A number of sociologists started writing about it, and then by the early 2000s, which, in parentheses, precisely at the point where a number of Christian sociologists started telling us, it's not happening, there's nothing to see here, move along, everything's fine. At precisely that moment, almost precisely that moment, the, the collapse comes to be seen in an extraordinary way. And we're in the midst of that right now. Let me give you some of the symptoms of this, of, of what I'm talking about. Early last year, I think it was February of last year, might have been March, somewhere around in there, the CDC declared a state of emergency for adolescent and young adult mental health in the United States. You might have heard about that. Uh, surely you've heard about how suicide rates, drug abuse, overdose, overdose deaths uh, are happening at higher rates than have ever happened in the history of the world before. I assume you've heard some of that. Another phenomenon, another symptom in all of this is an explosion of gender dysphoria, particularly among teenage girls. Now, another little parenthesis here. It's interesting. We've, we've not just discovered gender dysphoria. This is th something that's been known forever. 
And we've been studying it for over a hundred years. But the curious thing is that always previous to about 10 or about 15 years ago, it was almost exclusively a phenomenon seen among males, boys and men, not girls and women. And another curious thing is that it was something that, that these men or boys experienced from the time that they were small toddlers until uh, for really for the rest of their life. But what we're seeing now is, is, is what's being called rapid onset gender dysphoria. And what that is, it's primarily among girls. It's, a, it's primarily among teenage girls. Historically, the rates are 0.018% of all human beings experience this. In the last 15 years, we've seen an explosion of this. But again, the explosion is not generally among males and females. It's particularly among females. If you're interested in a good book on this subject, uh, Abigail Schreier is a, has written a, a good uh, book on the topic. Okay, so those are, those are a number of things. The CDC, state of emergency, the suicide rates, uh, gender dysphoria. I don't want this to be just a, a litany of all the bad things in the world, but let me mention plummeting marriage rates and birth rates. Uh, if you've been keeping up, for example, with the news about China, Japan, South Korea, Russia, we're, we're seeing a demographic implosion in these countries. And also, uh, large parts of Europe are experiencing this as well. And this is projected to have and is starting to have already catastrophic effects, so, both social and economic effects in the world. And one last thing I'll, I'll, I'll mention in this regard uh, that I think is related to this, and, and that is we're seeing deep religious decline uh, throughout the Western world. And here in the United States, for example, and I don't remember the exact figures, but I think it's something like we close five churches for every new church that's planted. We are in the midst of a huge demographic decline among evangelical churches in this country. Now, all of that, I would suggest to you that all of that gives us, a, a, essentially we could state the dilemma this way. Here's what I would say this phenomenon is. It's what sociologists call secularization. And here's how I would find secularization. Secular, this is the real technical definition. Secularization is a psychological parasite that bores into your skull and eats your brain. But it doesn't eat your whole brain. It only eats the part of your brain that enables you to see into the future and, and, and look into the future with hope, with a sense of purpose, with optimism. And so what secularization is doing in our world, much like the rat utopia experience, is it's, it's eating that part of our brains that give us hope or that enable us to latch on to hope, to latch on to a sense of meaning and purpose in life. It's related to our sense of, of self and personal identity. It's happening to individuals, but it's also happening to whole communities and whole cultures. And that's what we're in the midst of in our day. Now, I'm concerned about this, not just as a pastor and a missionary. Uh, of course, I am concerned about the decline of, of the church and things like that. 
But it's more than just that. I'm concerned about these things just as a human being because what we're seeing is something that is leading to almost unprecedented levels of human suffering in our world. Now, you might be saying, wow, after that uh, introduction, how depressing. Well, here's the good news. The text that we just read is filled with good news, particularly for this world that we're living in right now. In this passage, Jesus is giving us the solution. The gospel gives us and gives the world hope precisely because it restores that part of our brain that got eaten, got eaten by the, the parasite. It gives us hope by giving us a sense of meaning and purpose. It helps us to see where the world is going or where God is taking the world, and it enables us to attach ourselves to, to God's plan for the world. Essentially, I think we could say it this way. Jesus, in this passage, is calling us to become part of a great epic saga. Think of Lord of the Rings and, and Frodo. Jesus is the hero in God's great epic saga. And Jesus is calling upon us to join with him in that great saga, to be part of that story, to make our story part of that particular story, his story. It's a story about great struggle, hardship, challenge, and epic battles. But it's also a story that brings freedom, satisfaction, true human satisfaction, and exquisite eternal joy. So let's take a look at that in this passage here. Let me set the context just a little bit. Matthew's gospel, in the early part of the gospel, chapter 3, we find the other baptism passage in Matthew. In Matthew chapter 3, that's where Jesus is baptized. And it's there where Jesus is standing in the water of the Jordan River. He hears the voice from heaven of his Father saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then the Spirit of God descends in the form of a dove over him. Now, what ha what's, what's going on there is that the Father is identifying Jesus as the Messianic Son, the Messianic King. He is the hero in this great story of God's epic saga. And so chapter 3 of Matthew identifies Jesus in his baptism as the, the great hero of this story. Also, uh, there's a link there. We don't have time to get into this part. Ask me later if you're interested. There's a link there back to Psalm 2 and the great promise that the father makes to his son that he would give him all of the nations as his inheritance. But immediately after Jesus' baptism, he goes out into the desert where he's tempted by the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. And the climax of this temptation by the devil is where Satan says to him, all those nations that the Father promised you, where he said he would give you the nations as your, as your inheritance, he said he loved you too, but he's telling you that to get 
your inheritance, you have to go to the cross. What kind of a father is that? Is that a, a loving father? He said, you are my beloved son. He's calling you to receive the nations as your inheritance, but through anguish and suffering. Just come with me. Worship me, and I'll give you all the nations of the earth the easy way. You won't have to suffer. Just come with me. We'll get this fixed. Jesus then says to Satan, get away from me, Satan. Jesus then sets his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. He is focused on the task at hand. He goes to Jerusalem to die for the sins of the world. Chapter 26 and 27 is about his trial and his crucifixion. But then in chapter 28, where our passage is, three days after the crucifixion, he's raised from the dead. And on the other side of death, Jesus stands there in Galilee now with his now 11 disciples, and he makes this amazing claim about himself. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So what we see here is that Jesus is saying, all of those nations, the same nations that the Father promised me back in Psalm 2, the nations that Satan offered to give me the easy way in Matthew chapter 4, now... I have received title to those nations. On the other side of death and suffering, on the other side of the cross, now in the resurrection, all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I hold title to these nations, and so I'm calling you, my disciples, to come and join with me to go out and disciple these nations and inform these nations that the world has a new king and his name is Jesus. Now, all of that is sort of the, uh, the, the climax of this great epic saga that I was mentioning to you. But to understand what's going on in the passage, I, I think I've I probably said something like this when I preached here a couple of years ago. I say this to our students in, in the seminary in Peru all the time. To interpret the Bible well, you've got to have not just a good eye, you've got to have a good ear. And so much like the movie Shrek, where you can't understand what's going on in the movie Shrek unless you understand all of the allusions to nursery rhymes and pop music and pop culture and things in the news and politics and all of that, in the same way, you can't understand what's going on in the Bible unless you can catch those allusions and echoes and even citations of other passages in the Bible. What I want to suggest to you this morning is that this passage makes strong allusion to three particular stories from the Old Testament. And without understanding these, these three stories, we can't understand fully what's going on in the Great Commission and what this story is that we're called upon to participate in. The first of these stories is the story of creation. Let me 
again, try to set a little bit of the context here. In Matthew's gospel, the commentators tell us, uh, describe what an exquisite piece of literary artwork is the gospel of Matthew. It's it's just amazing when you start getting in and digging into the details of how Matthew pieced together this particular story. There are intricacies of, of literary masterpiece there. The commentators typically point out that Matthew is broken down into five main literary sections. Very dis- they, they all have a similar kind of beginning and end. They all start off talking about the deeds of Jesus, things he does, and then they, they end with a speech of Jesus. And there are five of these speeches in the, the book of Matthew. So you got these five main literary sections in Matthew, but you also have at the beginning of the gospel a prologue, and at the end of the gospel you've got an epilogue. The prologue starts with these words in Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Literally, it's this is the genesis of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In Greek, it's exactly the same phrase. Matthew's pulling that phrase precisely out of the book of Genesis. That phrase is the structural backbone of the whole book of Genesis. It occurs 10 different times in the book of Genesis. So what Matthew is saying, by starting off the gospel that way, with that phrase taken out of Genesis, he's saying that this story that I'm about to tell you, this story about Jesus is a story about a new creation. Jesus is the new Adam in God's new creation. And when we get to the epilogue, when we get to the end, to this passage that we just read, think about what Jesus claims for himself and try to listen for the echo. Jesus stands there and says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. Where does that phraseology come from? It comes straight out of Genesis chapter 1, where upon the creation of Adam, God says that Adam is to have dominion over the earth. He is to subdue the earth, have dominion, and he is supposed to be God's governor and the administrator of all of God's creation. He's the great king under God himself over all of creation. And now Jesus, at the at the end of the gospel, on the other side of the cross, Jesus is claiming, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now notice, he's, you, maybe you're thinking, well, but Jesus is God. So of course he has all authority in heaven and on earth. But notice he said, he's talking about an authority that he has just received. Not an authority that he always had from all eternity, which is true, but that's not what he's talking about here. What he's talking about here is he's saying, I am the new Adam. Just like the, the first Adam was given charge over all of God's creation, I am the new Adam, and the Father has given me as the new Adam charge over all of God's creation. And so the first story that we got to grasp to understand this epic saga that we're being told. The first story is the story of creation. The second story here is the story about Joshua and God's reclaiming of the promised land. I'm going real fast through these. Uh, I hope it's not like drinking out of a fire hydrant. The story of Joshua, and in fact, 
it's not an accident that the, the connection between the name Joshua and the name Jesus. Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua. Like we might talk about Juan and John, for example. It's the same phenomenon. Jesus is the Greek form of, of the name Joshua. Also, if we look carefully at the phraseology in Matthew 28, we'll see that Matthew, or Jesus rather, is lifting a phrase straight out of Joshua 1 and putting it here at the end of the gospel. And that phrase, well, let me, let me back up. And What's happening in Joshua 1 is that God has gathered all of his people together on the east side of the Jordan River. Moses has just died. Moses preached the whole book of Deuteronomy to them to prepare them to go into the promised land. And Moses has explained to them that this, this is not a conquest like it's often told. Rather, this is a restoration or a reclamation project because the land always belonged to God and His people. The land is holy land. It's the sanctuary land. It's the land from which are supposed to flow all the blessings of God to all of the nations of the earth. But something happened back in Genesis 9 with the story of Ham and Ham's descendant Canaan where this corrupt nation, the Canaanites, came to inhabit God's sanctuary land and what did they do? They stopped up all of the, 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 the fountains of blessing from the land. And so Israel's job is to go into the land, cleanse the land, so that once again the blessings of God can flow from His sanctuary to all the nations of the earth. And so, God, God is speaking in, in Joshua 1, God is speaking through Joshua, and he's speaking to the children of Israel just as they're about to go in and take possession of the land, and he's telling them the things that they need to do, and particularly he's telling them that he's, he's going to give them their inheritance, their possession, they are to be his priestly people, and he tells them over and over again, four or five times, he says, do not fear, do not fear, do not fear. Yes, there are giants in the land, but do not fear because I will be with you. This phrase here where Jesus says, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, that's almost lifted verbatim straight out of Joshua 1. So Jesus is claiming about himself not only that he is a new Adam in God's new creation, he's also claiming to be the new Joshua who restores God's sanctuary, in this case not the sanctuary land, but the sanctuary world where God himself desires to come and live amongst his people. There's a third story here. The third story is the story of Cyrus, who was the Persian emperor. So let me back up a little bit and tell you this story. All right, in the Old Testament, Israel gets to the point in its history where it has disregarded God's commandments for so long, they have begun to worship, or they have been worshiping other gods for so long, that God finally sends them out into exile. And he, he sends the Babylonians to come destroy the city of Jerusalem, to destroy the temple, and to carry Israel away into captivity. Now, 200 years before this happened, Isaiah the prophet prophesied about a man named Cyrus, the Persian, who would come after the, at the end of the exile and would liberate God's people. 
He would conquer Babylon. He would liberate God's people and set them free and return them uh, to, to the land. Jeremiah talked about this. Jeremiah uh, said, told God's people over and over again what was about to happen. In Jeremiah 29, after the first phase of this happens, Jeremiah says to the people of God, don't think that it's time to fight this. It's not time to fight it. It's not time to make yourself obnoxious to the Babylonians. You need to learn how to live patiently in the land of Babylon and wait. You need to build houses, raise families, pray for the peace of the city of Babylon, and wait. Be patient. But at the end of the, of the Hebrew Bible, and Here's another little detail. In the Hebrew Bible, it's structured differently than it is in English. The Bible in Hebrew begins with Genesis and ends with 2 Chronicles. And so at the end of 2 Chronicles, the last two verses of the last chapter of the last book of the Old Testament is where Cyrus, just after he has conquered Babylon, he has freed God's people, he is releasing them from their captivity, and now he says, the God of heaven and earth has now given all authority to me. Go, therefore, and rebuild the city of God in Jerusalem and rebuild my tabernacle. So when we look at what Matthew is doing in this exquisite piece of literary artwork, Matthew is telling us, Jesus is telling us, that the story of Jesus is about the new creation where Jesus is the new Adam. It's about a new Joshua and a new reclamation of the promised land. But it's also the story where Jesus is the new Cyrus. Jesus is the one who conquers the enemy, who held us enslaved and captive in exile. But this is not an exile from from the, the promised land in Palestine. This is an exile from the Garden of Eden. From the very beginning of history, when our first parents sinned against God, we were exiled from God's presence, and we've been subject to every kind of calamity and disease and sickness and sorrow and sadness, etc. But Jesus is the new and much greater Cyrus. He's the one who conquers the enemy who has held us enslaved. And he says to us, the exile's over. Jeremiah said, don't build. Don't build anything beyond your own houses. Sit quiet, be still, and, and just pray for the peace of the city. Now the new Cyrus is telling us, now the exile's over. Now it's time to build. Go back. Go and build the city of God because you've been set free. The captives are now free. The exile is over. So, the baptism that's referred to here, when he says, go and make disciples, baptizing them, this baptism is, is something that engrafts us into Jesus' baptism. It connects us with Jesus and with his baptism. So if, if you have been baptized into Christ, you've been plugged into his story. You've been plugged into his identity. And so in the same way that 
Jesus heard the Father saying to him, this is my beloved son. This is my son, my beloved. I love him. And with him I am well pleased. If you've been baptized into Christ, if you belong to Christ, then those words should be echoing in your ears as well. You should be able to hear the Father say to you, you are my son. You are my daughter. With you I am well pleased. And also the words from Psalm 2, ask of me and I have a glorious inheritance waiting for you. So if you belong to Jesus, you've been plugged into his baptism, you've been plugged into his mission, you've been plugged into his story. One of the things that I hear people say, uh, particularly young people in Peru, but also here in the States, and I hear this over and over again as I counsel with folks, I hear them say, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with my life. I don't know what the meaning of my life is. I don't know what God wants from me. I don't know what my purpose is. Your baptism into Christ gives you your identity. It gives you the meaning of your life. It gives you the purpose of your life because it plugs you into that great story. And now you know where all of history is going and you know that you are playing a role, a key role in that with Jesus who is the great hero of the story. I would argue that the single greatest pastoral task in our day, and this really applies to parents too, we could say the single greatest parental task in our day is helping our people, particularly our young people, helping our young people to discern and develop their sense of vocation and life purpose. Why is it that we're struggling with all of the things? Why do we have the suicide rate? Why do we have the opioid epidemic? Why do we have all of these things? Why is it that we're becoming the, 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 the rat utopia that has descended into pathological chaos and death. We're becoming that because we've been robbed of our sense of purpose and meaning. We've been robbed of our sense of, of vocation, of belonging, of whom we belong to and what our purpose in life is. And I think that's our, our single greatest pastoral and parental task is teaching and, and cultivating in our people, our young people especially, that sense of vocation and purpose. So this story, this is a story not just for individuals. It's not just a story for you. It's not just a story for our marriages, for our families. So, of course, it is all of those things. But this is an urgent story. This is an urgent message for us as a city, as a state, as a nation, as a world. This is urgent. At Hope, here at Hope Presbyterian Church, do we want to be a blessing to New Braunfels? Of course we do. That's what we talk about all the time, right? Then as a church, as a community, 
we have to grasp the connection between our baptism and our identity and our mission, that we are part of our identity is bound up with Jesus' identity and our purpose and meaning is bound up with Jesus' purpose and meaning and mission. The Great Commission is urgent, not just because it will hopefully increase the demographic profile of our social club, though of course I want the church to grow and I want us to plant a lot more churches, but the Great Commission is so urgent because it's the only thing that will draw this world up out of its nihilistic, pathological death spiral. Regaining our story, regaining our sense of mission, who we are, where we're going, what God has called us to do and to be. Do you want to save yourself? Do you want to save your marriage? Do you want to save your kids? Do you want to save your world? Then Jesus says, come with me. Join the mission. Join Jesus' mission. And in that mission, we will find our identity, our purpose, our meaning. And we will provide hope for the world. Let's pray. Holy Father, how we thank you for the new Adam, the new Joshua, the new Cyrus, who is indeed a far greater Adam and Joshua and greater Cyrus. Oh Lord, help us to live in these stories, to inhabit these stories as our story that we with Christ might have his boldness and courage and resilience and conviction to go forward in this mission that you've given us. Lord, help us to be a light in a dark world. Help us to be an aid in a desperately hurting and anguished world. Help us, O oh Lord, to have your hope and then extend that hope to the world around us as well. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.